0: We're going to be working our way through uh, about the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11. So if you have a Bible today, it be a good time to navigate your way there, stick your finger in the page or use your bookmark, whatever you want to do. If you have a phone or a tablet, uh, which is what I'll be using today, you're welcome to use that, of course. If you don't even have a Bible app, you have time to go grab one probably before we get there. Um, but today we're going to begin in a way again, something that we started working on in about the middle of last year. Of course, it's a new day, a new calendar year for us. 2023 has arrived, um, but we're kind of linking what we're doing this year back into what we started in 2022, and hopefully we're going to keep that chain going for the next three or four years so that there's some continuity and some theming in where we are in Scripture and what it is that you're hearing preached on Sundays and what your life group is up to when they meet during the week. Specifically today, we're going to kickstart the second of our spiritual practices from the way of Jesus You may remember that in last March, March of 2022, we spent 10 weeks, 10 consecutive weeks, trying to answer this question. The question being, why does modern Western discipleship often have more to say about what not to do than it does with how to actually follow Jesus? Now, I'm rewording that for you a little bit. We said it somewhat differently back in March, but I wanna kinda grab your imagination again and get you to take that question seriously. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, but there is an entire multi-million dollar industry that exists in the West that's designed to train pastors, it's designed to send missionaries, to publish Bible studies, to plant churches, to grow seminary enrollment. You've probably heard me refer to this before by name as the church industrial complex. But I want to take a couple of minutes today and further expand what I mean by that. That's somewhat of a theme, it's a challenge for us to understand what that is and, and resist maybe what it wants for our life and choose instead to go with Jesus than to maybe go with just the smartest or loudest Bible teacher that we've encountered in our life. This is the, the thing that holds all the cards in, in almost every way when it comes to evangelical church life, especially in the West. Uh, it holds the cards in regard to the status quo of most Protestant churches, most modern churches, most Western churches including the majority of what we accept in sort of the thought life of our churches. Now, if you can take that idea, the church industrial complex, and just put a pin in it for a second. I know I haven't got very deep, but we're going to come back to it. Now I'm going to ask you to think of something else, something that you probably haven't engaged with for, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, like I have. Uh, in 1992... Walt Disney Studios released an animated film, one of its most successful movies of all time. It's a retelling of one of the stories from 1001 Nights, which is an old Arabian kind of set of folktales. It's the Disney animation Aladdin. Aladdin, in my opinion, is one of Robin Williams' best performances. If you haven't seen the movie lately, there's a whole scene where he sings and he's the genie, and it's incredible what the man can do with his voice. It's crazy. Um, But about 27 minutes into the movie, there's a line where one of the characters actually makes a statement that applies... To the church industrial complex you didn't know that when you watched aladdin in 1992 right that it was going to forecast the future direction of thousands of churches in the united states well, you never know when you look under the hood aladdin in this scene is hanging from a wall he's in a jail cell sitting on the ground he's just gotten caught for stealing too many apples or loaves of bread or something like that. And the city guard throws him in jail and he's having this existential crisis because he's just run across Jasmine. Jasmine was dressed, she's the princess in the story if you don't know. She's dressed like a peasant girl and they encounter one another out in the market and he keeps trying to kind of impress her but she's just as kind of city-wise as he is, and so they start to kind of fall in love. Well, then he finds out that there's a law in the land that only a prince can marry a princess. So there's your conflict for the rest of the story. And so he's sitting in jail, and his little monkey friend is making fun of him because he's in love, and he says, well, it doesn't matter because I'm never going to be able to marry this girl anyway. And then the camera pans over to the shadows in the corner of the jail cell, and this old man slinks out of the The shadows. And you don't know who he is at first. You find out later that it's actually Jafar who's the bad guy. His parrot is behind his neck acting like he has an old hump. And he's got bad teeth and he's kind of stumping his way over on a cane. And he begins to talk to Aladdin and, and try to play on Aladdin's desire to marry Jasmine. He lays before Aladdin this opportunity, a plan, a scheme, if you will, that if they work together, there's this thing called the Cave of Wonders. And if they can go into it together and rob the Cave of Wonders, Aladdin might have enough money that Jasmine and her family would have to take him seriously. So Jafar lays that plan out in front of Aladdin, and Aladdin protests. He says, but the law says that only a prince can marry a princess. And then here comes the line. The old man, secretly Jafar, gets right in Aladdin's face, and he says, you've heard of the golden rule, haven't you? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And then he laughs for a really long time in a really creepy way. Okay, that, that's the line. That's the line that, to me, defines and explains why we have a church industrial complex in the West. Why we need to platform Christian speakers. Why pastors need radio shows and TV shows and YouTube channels and have to be on every social media platform. Why are there conferences that cost millions and millions of dollars to put on in which people essentially just teach the Bible? Where does that come from? And not only where does it come from, but what does it do to us? You see, the answer to the question, why does modern Western discipleship often have more to say about what not to do than it does with how to follow Jesus is because... Whoever has the gold makes the rules. It is in the vested best interest of certain people who hold a lot of power in the evangelical world to keep you inside the bounds of play, to to feed you again and again a new system, a new idea, a new highly marketed book or podcast or Bible study that if you would just get this right, everything would change about your Christianity. You've seen this happen before. Certainly, you've had somebody who loves you in your family purchase for you the next hottest book, whatever it may be. Many of you probably only know the names of people like Francis Chan or Matt Chandler or David Platt because they themselves have ridden the wave of the church industrial complex and published their works out into the world such that somebody who loves you bought you a copy of something that they wrote. Now, there's a lot of good things that come with really good and fair and faithful Bible teaching making its way to the ends of the earth. I'm not here to pick on that. But what I want you to understand is, for you and I, as people who are trying to get to Jesus, oftentimes, we get handed what's called a resource, and instead of that resource functioning like it's supposed to, as grease on the wheels of our faith, it builds a new wall for us. Now, it may not be a very high wall, but it's still a barrier. It still lays out in front of us that we have a problem. We have to do certain right things in the right order to solve that problem. And if we can do that, if we can identify the problem and solve it, then we can be close to God. I don't know if you know this or not, but that's literally the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the polar opposite of what Jesus came and said. He said, I'm coming to you. You've done nothing and you won't do anything and I'm doing it all and now we can be together. Now because we have kind of this poor, thin, shallow understanding of what discipleship is in a lot of our churches... We look at the Bible, we read what Jesus says about things like prayer or healing or the power that our faith will have, and then we look at our lives and we go, well, none of that's happening where I live. And so we assume that there must be something wrong. And instead of returning to the words and the teaching of Jesus, oftentimes we go to a guru. We go pardon me, to someone who has expertise or who grew a big church from nothing or planted the next big megachurch or has been all over the world and has led revivals and has tutored and counseled so many hundreds or thousands or millions of people and we assume because they've been prolific that they've been faithful. But maybe not. Because who was totally faithful and not terribly prolific? Jesus was. (laughs) He changed the lives of 12 people to start with. And that's it. And it took him three years, and then at the end of his ministry, they killed him before he even had a chance to really get out into the world and and have his big evangelism crusade or get his podcast started or write all the books that we would have loved to read. Now, the difference, of course, is that our Christ is eternal. He returned from the dead, and he reigns. And so we can know him, and he is alive, and he does have that level of influence. But the model he used as a rabbi to his apprentices is often lost to you and I. And it comes down to the wealth that that industrial complex has created. The wealth is what gives people a platform. These people seem to have a product that works, right? So they write books, they publish articles and blogs, they post their ideas and philosophies online. And people like you and I, people who wanna be near to Jesus, we, we trust these people. We buy the lie that following Jesus is formulaic and that if my relationship with Jesus doesn't seem to be bearing fruit or paying off or working out or however you wanna say that, isn't doing what I thought it would do, then it must be that I'm not doing it right. We look for a hack. We want a shortcut. We want somebody to tell us the secret. There must be something wrong with the Christian tribe or tradition that we grew up in, right? Or that we were saved into, and so we go looking. And unfortunately, the last place many of us ever have been told to look is the life of Jesus of Nazareth as told by the New Testament in your Bible. Eventually, our journey for something new, something better, something that scratches the itch that our same old, same old isn't seeming to reach, it brings us to something new that's exciting, that's distinct enough from what we've been trying that we believe that this time it's going to be different for us. We're going to turn over that new leaf. This is maybe where today being January 1st has a little bit to do with our spiritual lives. We want someone to hand us a clean slate. We want to be told that we can start over. Maybe, for instance, we leave the Catholic Church and we become Baptist because finally we've found a church that's serious about evangelism. Or we leave the Baptist Church and we become Presbyterian because finally we found a church that takes the Bible seriously— Or we leave the Presbyterian church and we become Pentecostal because finally we find a church that knows how to access the spirit of God. Or we leave the Pentecostal church and become Catholic because they have beautiful liturgies and they engage the body and the mind and they ground us in an ancient tradition. And we cycle. We move from camp to camp to camp, from tribe to tribe to tribe, and all the while we're trying to move closer to the Jesus who's at the middle of all of that, but we're just skating around him in a circle. I don't know if you've experienced this. I've seen it. I've seen it in seminary. I've seen it in youth groups. I've seen it in life groups. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it in missionary movements. We don't know how to get to Jesus, and so we just move laterally, and we move laterally, and we move laterally. It's a cycle. And even if it doesn't happen to you in your lifetime, maybe you're so dyed in the wool and committed to your tradition that you couldn't imagine doing this, you've probably seen it play out in the lives of your children, and if you haven't yet, you will. They'll go another way, they'll pick another tribe, they'll pick another tradition, maybe not eager to let go of the Jesus that's supposedly at the middle, but so frustrated with the process that they were handed, called discipleship, that didn't get them to that Jesus who's supposed to be at the middle, that they're willing to walk away from much of what might be good about the tradition that they came from. So here's the question. If we know that what we've called discipleship for a long time hasn't been all that effective, and we understand, if you can just trust me, that at least to some degree that's rooted in the fact that there is an agenda on behalf of people that want to feed us resources that can't really meet our needs and keep us thirsty so we keep going back to the well and keep us thirsty so we keep going back to the well, on and on and on. Then we have to find something else. We're not really waiting for a resource. Believe it or not, you don't really need me to preach prayer to you. <laughs> you don't really need a new emphasis on spiritual disciplines. You don't really need a fresh new life group. You don't really need a brand new church. You need Jesus, and if those other things will help you get to Him, then they're good. They're worthwhile. They should be taken seriously. But our objective has to be that no matter what we do, whether it be a spiritual discipline or a commitment to change or uh, leading a group or reading the Bible or whatever, however we approach these things, we have to understand that the objective is not the thing we're doing, it's allowing the thing we're doing to get us to the objective. And the objective is not a what, it's a who. And who it is, is Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you met Jesus at salvation, right? It was honest. It was pure. It was one-on-one, you and him. You knew you were wrong. For whatever reason, for the first time in your life, all the puzzle pieces that your evangelical grandmother and your parents and your Sunday school teacher and your friend from gym class, all of that stuff aligned finally, and it clicked for you. And you went, I get it now. And it was more than just an intellectual understanding. There was an emotional response from the inside of you. Maybe it was for you the idea that Jesus shouldn't have had to die because of how bad you were and how good he was. That's similar to my experience. Maybe for you, you'd lived a life of rejection or you'd been mistreated or abused and you finally found in Jesus a person who would accept you and keep you safe, a person who wouldn't threaten you by changing you. Whatever it was, it was personal and it was intimate and then step two is you start going to church, right? (laughs) And supposedly, in theory, if everything works according to the way the book is written, the church is supposed to train you It's supposed to teach you. It's the place, the school of life for how you go with God day to day, moment to moment, how you live a life with Christ. And yet instead, for many of us, we can't seem to find the way to Christ. We're told we should pray more, but nobody teaches us how. We're told we should read our Bible so we start in Genesis and we make it two or three books in and we give up. Or we start in John and we get to about John 11 and Jesus starts claiming to do stuff and demonstrating miracles and we just go, I don't know what to do with all of this. And frankly, I'd rather watch Netflix or catch up on college football or get some more work done. And so we tend to walk away from it. Churches are good at telling us what to do. They're not always great at teaching us how to do and it's even easier for them to overemphasize what we should not be doing because it becomes obvious. Many churches become sort of cannibalistic, where other Christians are like piranhas in the water, and if they smell any blood, they jump on you, and they begin to attack you and tear you down and gossip about you, often in Jesus' name, because of the mistakes you've made that nobody loved you long enough to lead you out of. This is the cycle. This is sort of the never-ending, trying to swim under the waterfall and constantly having our heads pushed back down over and over again. That is not the vision of the church that Jesus has. The vision of the church that Jesus has is that we should be handed, oh, I don't know, around 2,000 years worth of tradition. You know, a way to live every moment in the presence of the Father by way of the Spirit of God to whom we have access only by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, for a long time, I think that was the case. This is why we have a tradition of church disciplines and spiritual life and things and people who can lead us and guide us. But in the early 1900s, about at the close of World War I, the evangelical missionary movement roared across the face of the planet. There was a new sense of globalism in the West, uh, as a byproduct, I think, of shipping thousands of young men and women all over the world between 1914 and 1918 to fight in the First World War. Now, in order to rapidly train and deploy missionaries to the corners of the globe, the fullness of Jesus, as revealed in the entirety of the Christian scriptures, had to be distilled down to maybe 10 to 20 Bible verses and then had to be mass printed in tracts and pamphlets before being exported across the planet in the name of global evangelism. Again, don't misunderstand me, I don't think everything about this is bad, but this movement had side effects and the most significant side effect is that the church industrial complex was born to facilitate this rapid fire process of simplifying and distilling and producing and simplifying and distilling and producing and translating and planting and and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. The sense of biblical urgency in many ways morphed and evolved and turned into something that doesn't really seem to carry the character of Christ. We look at the scriptures, right, and we see how slow and unhurried Jesus was, and then we meet every megachurch pastor we've ever met who has 15 bodyguards on a Sunday morning and can't even carry his own cell phone because it's exploding with text messages, and he's been up all night preparing his sermon, and he barely sees his family, and we go, where is the Jesus in that model? So we're left with a bit of a conundrum here. We have a process We have machinery, if you will. We have whole systems that are somewhat designed to continue to kick us in the pants and keep us moving, but we don't know what toward. We don't seem to be making any progress, though we spend all of our time working. Where does it give? Where does this break down for us? I think that, though I would argue that silence and solitude is the most foundational of the disciplines and is the best starting point, probably prayer, where we are today and where we'll be for the next four weeks, has the ability, the possibility, if you will, of maybe finally permanently changing all of that. I would argue that it's the one thing that's probably missing from the machinery and it's the thing that the machinery tends to replace first and fastest. Because is not efficient. Prayer doesn't always go the way we thought. We ask God questions. We lay our plans before him and he swipes everything off the table and says, you're not gonna do any of that stuff. And we go, but I already bought tickets and I already fundraised and I already studied 16 words in Swahili so I could share the gospel with people on the African subcontinent. And God goes, but you didn't ask me about any of that stuff. So let's start there. Prayer is challenging. Prayer can be scary. Prayer has the possibility of disrupting and uprooting all kinds of things that we've gotten married to in the Western modern church. But... If what we want is to be connected to Jesus, to follow him and to know him, we will not take a single step forward without prayer. We won't. We can't do it. So here's what we have to do instead. We have to look closely at the life of Jesus. Because he's our rabbi and we choose to apprentice ourselves to him, to follow his way of life. He is our example. He is where we find the teaching and the tradition of the church fully synced up and aligned without having to worry about all the baggage of tribalism and denominations and people picking on each other. He is the purest and best example of what it looks like to be in an intimate relationship with God the Father and to speak to him out of that relationship. Apprenticing ourselves to Jesus means we take on his practices. We choose to plan our lives around what is most important to him, around how he taught his disciples to live. In October of last year, we tried to lift from the Bible a model of philosophy for silence and solitude as a practice. We engaged with that practice for five weeks. We heard long-form teaching on Sundays from the scriptures. We explored the practical side of that practice with midweek teachings, and we're going to use that same model to navigate our second practice today, which is prayer. Not just prayer as a way to ask for help, not just prayer as a way to impress people at church, prayer as a spiritual practice from the way of Jesus. So hopefully you've had time to turn to Luke chapter one. Really quickly, I just wanna share with you some recommended reading, if that's a help to you. We're gonna show you this on the screen. These are a handful of resources that have helped me in navigating and preparing to instruct you in prayer. Um, You can take a picture of that if that's the easiest way to process it, whatever. But if you wanna do a little bit more reading, I'll tell you the one thing on that list that's been most helpful to me is the book by Andrew Murray, with Christ in the school of prayer. It's short, it's like 150 pages. Maybe that doesn't feel short to you. It's very short (laughs) compared to a lot of other books. Very practical, has 31 short lessons that Andrew Murray pulls straight from Christ's teaching. Andrew Murray was a South African missionary back in the mid 1800s. If you wanted to, you could order it and start today and you could read one lesson every day for 31 days. That's up to you. You don't have to do that, but I think it would be very much worth your time. So now let's come to Luke. Luke chapter 11, okay, we know that we're looking for prayer. We're trying to learn it from Jesus. We're gonna figure out what he wants us to do. We're maybe a little more open, hopefully, to letting go some of the wrong and bad ideas that we have about prayer. Here's what happens in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Another way to interpret that is a specific place, a place on purpose, a place maybe that his disciples knew he went to to pray, Right, in your house, uh, my mom growing up had a little closet that was her prayer closet. She took those verses literally from the Bible. And she would go in there, and the walls were covered in post it notes where she would pray for different stuff, and she would move prayers from requested to answered on the other wall, and she would weep with the Lord in there, and she would bear her soul. But we knew, I knew, you don't knock on that door. That's the only door you don't knock on. You call the police before you get mama if she's in the prayer closet, okay? It's important. So the disciples have a similar sense of Jesus has gone to a certain place to pray, and when he was done, this is the rest of verse one one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John the baptizer taught his disciples. And so Jesus said to them, it's implied he says yes, when you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and do not lead us into temptation. So that's Jesus' formula. He hands that to his disciples. We're gonna spend time in the next four weeks digging down into that formula and trying to understand what does it mean and why did Jesus choose those specific words to represent communication between him and the Father. But he goes on and he gives a couple of really helpful examples. So we'll keep reading in verse five. Then Jesus said to his apprentices, suppose that one of you has a friend, which I think is a funny way to word that because maybe he knows that these guys aren't that likable. Imagine if you had a friend and you went to him at midnight. Okay, you woke him up in the middle of the night. Many of you were awake at midnight last night, maybe against your will like I was. I'm not a big fireworks guy. So imagine somebody comes over to your house at midnight. You go to him and you say to your friend, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has stopped here while on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. I don't wanna be rude. This goes against a lot of kind of culture that I live in. Help me out. Give me three loaves of bread. It's enough for us to eat. Please help me. Then the man will reply from inside, do not bother me. The door is already shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, he's speaking to his disciples again. Even though the man inside will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of the first man's sheer persistence, he will get up and he will give him whatever he needs. Jesus tells another story at another point in his ministry about a woman who is wronged by her neighbor and comes before a judge and the judge is sort of implied to be corrupt. He doesn't take this woman seriously even though it's his job to do that and the woman just continues to beat this guy down verbally, just assault him every time she sees him. Please take me seriously. Please hear my case. Please take me seriously. Jesus uses that story to make the same point. You need to be persistent and even if you might not take somebody seriously simply out of love, you need to understand that if you just keep asking, eventually the other person on the other end will get sick of hearing you and they will show up, and they will answer. Not the most romantic way to verbalize prayer, right? Probably not what you were taught when you were first a Christian, is just bombard God with stuff, and eventually he'll get so sick of you that he'll have to answer your prayer. Now, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying, but his point remains. There needs to be a sense of persistence here. This is something you do regularly. Jesus, I think, is trying to answer the implied question that's underneath the question. When they say, Lord, teach us to pray, they're also kind of asking, why do you do this this way? what the heck is going on, Jesus, that you have a certain place for prayer that you go to regularly and repeatedly and you pray again and again? And Jesus is continuing to answer that question by saying to them, it's as if you were to go and ask for bread and your neighbor said it's too late, but you kept asking and finally he answered. Keep asking. He goes on to explain himself in verse nine. He says, so I tell you this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Why? Because everyone who asks asks, receives. These are statements about God the Father's character. So don't misunderstand this. Jesus isn't sharing a formula. He's letting you know what kind of guy God is. Everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, to him the door will be opened. What father, because remember Jesus just taught them to call Yahweh father, so now he's saying, what father that you know among you, if your son were to ask you for a fish, would give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks you for an egg, would instead give him a scorpion? If you then, although you are evil, he kind of slips that in there, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now there's a whole lot in these 13 verses and we just frankly don't have time today, but we're gonna come back and unpack this. I just want you to notice that Jesus seems to think that the thing that his disciples are spending most of their time asking for or they should be spending most of their time asking for is the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls back to not what they can get from God, but whether or not they can be with him. The spirit of God is always about presence, being with God, God being with you, inhabiting your life, your thoughts, your ideas, your moment to moment. Jesus isn't saying what you really need is three loaves of bread. What he's saying is if you're going to pray like me, you're going to ask the Father for the presence of the spirit and you're going to get it. And then you're going to get to be with me. Think about John 14 when Jesus describes the Spirit of God as another of the same kind, another rabbi for his disciples. After he departs and goes, that the Spirit would come and it would be in that Spirit that they would abide. That the Spirit is also the Spirit of Jesus and that as we live with the Spirit and know the Spirit, we are abiding in the vine, the true vine, Jesus. Now, for the sake of today, I don't want to go any deeper than that. So I just want to kind of keep it high level and then we're going to move forward next week with a little more depth. But I'll just want to try to ask and answer this question. What is prayer? I don't know if you know this, but the Bible never defines prayer. You can comb through, and I did it this week, every book of the Bible to try to figure out, does anybody ever ask God what is prayer? And no, they don't, because why would they? Because if they're already asking him, then they're already praying. So it's kind of this chicken and egg thing. Prayer, I think, is important to define because we have to understand what it is that Jesus' apprentices are asking him to teach them. So here's my definition, and I spent way too long on this, and you're gonna read it and go, really, really, I'm sorry, here's the definition. It is communication, between the eternal human spirit and the eternal living God. That was really hard for me to define. Here's why. Because if I'm too specific, then I accidentally create another formulate category for you, where you go, well, I can only do it that way, and if I don't do it that way, then one of my pastors says it's not really prayer, right? I don't want to convince you that only I really know what real prayer is, because then I'm just as bad as anybody else who's in the church industrial complex. But on the other hand, if I'm too vague about it, then I run the risk of not challenging the ideas that you have, which I think need to be challenged. The ideas you have about prayer that may not necessarily be found in Jesus' teaching, I also run the risk of giving you too much room for confirmation bias, for hearing me say things that go against your ideas but saying them so vaguely that you think I'm agreeing with your ideas. I also don't want to do that. So in an attempt to be more specific without being too specific, I have two lists that I want to share with you. The first list is a set of things that prayer is more than. Prayer is more than these things. These are commonly accepted misrepresentations of prayer that I have seen in many, many modern churches. And I'll just tell you, if you see something on this list that sounds like something that you or a church or a Christian that you know has taught you or embraced about prayer, this is your opportunity. I give you the authority and the power in your life to flush this down the toilet where it belongs. These things are not representative of what it means for your eternal spirit to make contact and communicate with the eternal spirit of God. Now, you can see that list, but I'm gonna do this quickly for the sake of those that are listening to the audio in the future. These things are lip service. Prayer is more than lip service when you're just living for yourself, but you're kind of praying as if you're not. Prayer is more than an appeasement ritual to try to convince God to not hit you with his next lightning bolt. Prayer is more than a rite of passage in either a church or a small group to prove that you're somehow spiritual enough or whatever to other Christians. Prayer is more than a magic trick where you snap your fingers, wave your wand, say the magic words, and get what you want. Prayer is more than grandstanding in the interest of scoring you points at church, and prayer is more than wicked condescension, aka gossip in Jesus' name. I hope you never encountered that one. That's one of the most insidious and the hardest habits to break. Now, we don't have time to navigate all the references for these points, but I gave them to you in the hope that maybe you will. If one or two of these hits close to home, and you go, man, everybody who's ever taught me anything about prayer has really only taught me to do this thing, here's an easy way for you to go to the Bible. Put that slide back up for me, Josh, and see exactly what God is saying about why that's not what prayer is. So you could grab a reference or two of those. The second list is just like the first, whereas the first list is things that prayer is more than The second list is things that prayer cannot be less than. I know that sounds like a double negative and doesn't make sense, but you're gonna see what I mean in just a second. These are the most basic truths that come to us from Jesus' teaching on prayer, which don't take my word for it. Come back every Sunday in January and I'll prove it to you. But unfortunately, these elements are almost always missing in popular prayer. So you and I, whether you did it on purpose or not, simply by exposure and living online, we have been discipled that prayer is something that it's not. We've been discipled in many ways that prayer can be primarily political. We've been discipled by movies and TV shows, that prayer is just kind of an emergency break that you pull on your life when you're about to do a car crash or somebody's in your house with a weapon or you're gonna fail a test you didn't study for. Um, unfortunately we've been discipled by prayer in a sports context a lot of times the only prayer we ever see anybody pray is a quick cross they don't even do it the right way okay i went to catholic mass on christmas eve with my grandparents and they do it the right way and the football players don't do it the right way it was a point that was made to me and they're right so that's not even good discipleship even if you're catholic okay and unfortunately now prayer has become something that's supposed to demonstrate a sense of spirituality but what's baked into the content is always an agenda It's not about approaching God and knowing Him. It's not really about communicating with Him. It's sort of like this passive sermon with your eyes closed where you just attack the people around you with ideas and they can't really say anything about it because you have to be respectful and close your eyes in prayer or else your grandmother will be mad at you, right? So this is sort of the way that we've been discipled slowly over time. Much of what has been called prayer in the last 20 years of mainstream American culture looks a lot more like the first list than the second. And again, to be quick here for the sake of those that are listening, prayer is never less than honest. Prayer tells the truth and prayer accepts the truth in response. Prayer is never less than direct. It gets to the heart of the issue because it comes from your spirit. Prayer is never less than earnest. It doesn't play games with God or with circumstances. Prayer is never less than spiritual. It issues forth from the eternal part of you. It's never less than kingdom-minded. Jesus seemed to think in his teaching that if you aren't praying with the kingdom of God in view, that you're wasting your time. And prayer is never less than humble. It has much to learn at the feet of the master, Jesus, because it's not formulaic. We're not trying to become master bakers or master chefs, according to memorizing all the principles of a style of cooking in a, in a cookbook. We are gaining principles that we can carry with us into every circumstance that essentially just remind us, I need to take this to God. No matter what it is, whether it's a high, high, or a low, low, we learn to bring that to God and communicate with him about it, and he will interpret those situations for us and tell us exactly how we ought to be feeling and responding and the actions that we should take. So I'll ask you again, what is it that Jesus' apprentices are asking him to teach them to do in Luke 11? They're asking him to teach their eternal spirits to communicate with the eternal living God. And what they are not asking him to do is give them a lesson in lip service, nor a tutorial in appeasement, nor a rite of passage walkthrough, nor a quick magic lesson, nor a lecture on grandstanding, nor coaching on wicked condescension. Now, if they don't want any of the warped versions of prayer that we just listed, then what do they want? What do they see in Jesus that draws them to his example? Nothing less than humility, kingdom-mindedness, spirituality, earnestness, direct communication, and honesty, all wrapped around and integrated into communication between the eternal part of them and the eternal living God. What they saw in Jesus was a living revolution. This is one of the points that's come to us from our study of the book of Mark. So much about Jesus is different from what we think. It's as as if he's been pulled out of a book and planted into a different place. He doesn't fit the context, he doesn't always play by the rules, people can't figure him out. But something about him is so intriguing, it's so fascinating, it's so drawing to you and I that when we get to him we go, would you teach me how to do that? I've never seen anything like that before. I can't put my finger on exactly why, but would you show me? Would you guide me? Would you open my mind and heart? Would you give me some flexibility and humility to be changed? An example and a teacher of prayer, a man who dismantled and rebuilt what all the disciples thought prayer could be, and he did that simply by lifting his eyes excuse me, his eyes toward heaven and addressing his Father. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster frames this encounter between the disciples and Jesus like this. He says, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. They had prayed all their lives, And yet something about the quality and quantity of Jesus praying caused them to see how little they knew about prayer. If their praying was to make any difference on the human scene, then there were some things that they needed to learn. And this has been my experience with Jesus as well. The starting point, if we want to see the eternal part of us communicate with the eternal living God, the very first step is the last thing on that list of things that prayer can never be less than, it's humility. It's being willing and open to admit that maybe we've been praying for 80 years and we don't really know how to do it the way that Jesus taught. Maybe not. Maybe that's obvious to you because you don't see a lot of fruit born in your prayer life. Maybe you feel like God doesn't answer your prayers. We're gonna talk about that next week. That's the primary thrust of the whole sermon next week is what do we do with unanswered prayer? And what does that mean? Because it's always been a part of the dynamic between God and people. Maybe for you, you don't know how to pray for yourself. You feel guilty. You're so aware of what's wrong with you, of the things that should make God want to reject you, that it's easy to pray for other people, but you just never bring your whole self into God's presence. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Maybe the opposite is true for you. Maybe you've spent so much time praying for yourself that you feel guilty, but not so guilty that you change, and you don't really pray for anybody else. You're the kind of person where people will say, at Life Group, hey, would you guys pray for me? I'm dealing with X, Y, and Z, and you go, yeah, and it's a lie, because you'll never do it. Well, Three weeks we're gonna talk about how do we pray for one another and what does the Bible have to say to us about that? And finally, we'll land the plane together, hopefully gaining just one paradigm shift in our heads. Hopefully seeing from the examples in scripture that prayer is less about talking and more about listening. And I think if we can grasp that, that stands a chance of potentially revolutionizing everything about our prayer lives. So here's what I hope for us. I hope that we reject all the thin and shallow examples of prayer around us. I hope that you'll be willing to identify when and where what I call the church industrial complex may have wrongly influenced you when it comes to prayer. May have taught you something that was too formulaic or too self-centered or too vague to be helpful instead of bringing you to the feet of Jesus where you can learn from him. May we have the courage to learn from Jesus himself. May we have the faith and trust church to believe that the simple way that he teaches his disciples to pray is actually the most effective and dynamic way that we can approach God the Father. May we walk away from all of the flashy books and conferences and studies on prayer that draw so many people but do so little for the kingdom, and may we find Jesus in a way that transforms what it means to live. So here's how we're gonna finish today. You remember when we did Silence and Solitude, if you were here in October, that we started with just a minute, we worked our way up, I think maybe to two or three, I can't remember, but we spent some time quietly together at the conclusion of each of our services in an attempt to just, on a really small level, practice what it was that you had all just heard me preach. As we work through prayer now as a practice, I wanna do something similar. One of the books I recommend for further reading if you wanna involve yourself more in prayer is a book by a guy named Douglas McKelvey called Every Moment Holy. And it's a collection of liturgical prayers that Douglas wrote that fit all kinds of circumstances. Uh, You may recall back a couple of months, Tyler Wolfe preached and he used one of the liturgies from this book, a liturgy for the changing of diapers. Maybe that's stuck in your memory. That's where that was from. Um, But we're gonna do a liturgy Today, together, to be done. Here's what that means, okay? If you come from a liturgical background, I told you, I went to Mass on Christmas Eve, okay? I've seen one version of this. We're not doing it that way. Um, For the first week of this, I'm gonna just read and pray this over you and with you. And we're gonna have the words on the screen so you can follow along, but I'm not gonna ask you to say a word because you've never seen this prayer before. And I don't know if you think that you wanna buy into this thing or not yet. That's fine. In a couple of weeks, we may make it a little bit more call and response than it is to start with, but I want you to understand this is a pre-written prayer that I think is beautiful and really fitting for what it is that we're going to do. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to work my way through these next few slides with you. You can watch, listen, close your eyes, be in whatever physical posture you like to take when you pray. Just agree with me in spirit if you agree with the things I'm reading. When I'm done, the band will be back on stage. They're going to lead us in a couple more songs, and this is the way that we're going to finish our time together. So if you're ready... Here we go. This is a liturgy for the labors of community. Our lives are so small, O Lord. Our vision so limited. Our courage so frail. Our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. We are gathered here because we believe that we are called together into a work we cannot yet know the fullness of. And still, we trust the voice of the one who has called us. And so we offer to you, O God, these things, our dreams, our plans, our vision. Shape them as you will. Our moments and our gifts. May they be invested toward bright, eternal ends. Richly bless the work before us, Father. Shepherd us well, lest we grow enamored of our own accomplishment or entrenched in old habit. Instead, let us listen for your voice, Our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your spirit in this endeavor. Let us in true humility and poverty of spirit remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your design. You alone, O God, by your gracious and life-giving spirit, have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts to one another. Unite your people, multiply our meager offerings, O Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May your acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, may our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mysterious workings of your Spirit, who weaves all things together toward a redemption more good and glorious than we yet have eyes to see or courage to hope for. May our love and our labors now echo your love and your labors, O Lord, and let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, In this, the work you have ordained for this community, flower in winsome and beautiful foretaste of greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Amen. Amen.